Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. The The hardest part about comedy, it kind of like how I was talking about in uh, in a writer's room, there's a skill set of knowing what to say and a skill set of knowing when to shut the fuck up. Mm. In a joke, there's a skill set of knowing when to add punchlines, and there's a skill set of knowing when the joke is over. Like, one of the worst things comedians can do is over-tag a joke and take something that was hilarious and make it unfunny because they couldn't stop trying for more and more laughs. Like, don't be selfish with the laughs. If you have a great punchline, know when to step away and just let it be. What is up, Hot Breathiverse? Welcome back to the Hot Breath Podcast. This is your weekly guide to comedy mastery. I am your host, comedian Joel Byers. And you know what time it is. Hot Breath. <sighs> that is right, Hot Brethren and Sisterin. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the Hot breath verse. This is Hot breath episode number 193. I appreciate y'all so much. This show has been growing every single week. Thank you so much. I love this community. I appreciate this community. And if you enjoy all the ad-free content you're getting here with Hot Breath, hopping over to the Patreon page, checking out what we have going on over there. Have a lot of additional behind-the-scenes content, early episodes, writing workshops I've done all over on the Patreon. So if you, that's something you're interested in, go in the show notes. There's a link to our patreon.com slash hotbreathpod and check it out. No contribution is too small. It really does help to keep this show coming to you ad-free. And anyone that signs up for the headliner level actually gets a free trophy husband koozie as well. In the spirit of giving, of course. Tis the season, hot brethren and sistren. So thank you for all your support. Let's get into this episode. This guest is actually number four interview we ever did. We are now on 193. He is the fourth guest we ever had. And since then, he has gone on to be on Conan, James Corden. He's a writer on Mrs. Maisel. He's had a Comedy Central special. So much information we get out of this episode. So if you do find it helpful... Remember, he was in town, he was willing to meet up for like an hour during his downtime to do this episode. So if you find it helpful, hit him up on social media and let him know this episode was amazing and you learned a lot from him. And that helps to spread what we call here the hot breath averse. Reach out to me as well. Let me know what you think of it. I'd love to hear from you and connect with you as well. We have a Facebook group called the Hot Breath Comedy Network. It's a private group, but if you search it on Facebook, request to join, we'll let you in and you can start connecting with listeners from around the world. A lot of good discussions going on in there and a lot of good discussion in this episode. So let's get into it. As there's only one thing left to do, and that is remind you, this is also on YouTube, so go subscribe there and subscribe and leave reviews on iTunes, wherever else you get your podcasts. As there is only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath with Noah 
Garden Swartz. It was a cool interview, but it was in his green room and it was dark. So then in post, it required a lot of doctoring and it really compromised the quality. So right after that interview, I went and bought a light. I was like, I don't want to ruin another interview. Like, of course, Cedric the Entertainer is the one I'm like, we'll we'll figure it out. Let me know when we're going. All right. Well, I'll do an intro and then we'll start. And this water's for you as well. Oh, thank you. You want? Oh, wow. Labeled water. Hey, yeah. we're, we've, we've come a long way since I episode four, I man. I see that. <laughs> was I episode four? You were episode four. How about it? You, your episode, what was funny about yours is it was our first phone interview. And I remember the phone kept cutting out, the batteries died, my SD card filled up. Like, yeah. all this happened during our interview. So it was a, it was a big lesson we learned. Did the music pick up? Or is it no, it, it'll be fine. Okay. I've interviewed uh, a few people in here. Oh, okay, cool. Right over there was... Ian Edwards and uh, Robert Kelly. Nice. And uh, Roy Wood Jr. was on the couch. I've been trying to move it around so it looks like we're in different places, but <laughs> it's really all, it's all the lobby. Let me just set a timer so we make sure we get you. But we should be good. Mm. All right, very nice. All right, so let me give you your proper intro, and then we will begin. All right. We're going off the grid for this one. Full respect to Joe Buck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hot Breath of Verse, welcome back to the Hot Breath Podcast, your weekly guide to comedy mastery. I am, of course, your host, Joel Byers, and our guest today, Hot Brethren and Sister, and he was back on the show in 2015, Hot Breath episode number four. Back in that day, he had just been a new face on Just for Laughs and just appeared on Last Comic Standing. Since then, he has been on Conan twice, he's been on James Corden, he's had his own Comedy Central special, and most recently, he's been an actor and writer on The Marvelous Ms. Maisel. And the beautiful thing about that is in our interview, he actually alluded to wanting to get more writing gigs. And after submitting countless writing packets to different TV shows, he actually booked Mrs. Maisel because they saw his stand-up on Comedy Central. So keep grinding on the stage, kids. All your opportunities will grow from that. But let's see what opportunities grow from this one. They may see him on here and want to book him for something else. But in the meantime, Noah Gardenschwartz, welcome back to Hot Breath, man. Thank you for having me. The operation has grown so much since... (laughs) Not just my 2015, we did a phone interview, so mm-hmm. when you asked me to do the pod again, I had no idea we were now live on YouTube, so excuse <laughs> the sweatpants. <laughs> Although, if I'm being honest, even if I knew it was being filmed, I still probably would have worn the sweatpants, but yeah, it was nice sure. to be like, what? I didn't know we were going to be <laughs> on camera. Is this like, is this the attire of like a writer? You guys just show up in like pajamas? and uh, I, Honestly, I've gone to work in sweatpants before, but I try to put on jeans. But but oh, yeah, okay. I mean, writers. <laughs> I try to put on. <laughs> I try to put on jeans. Like some days, uh, no. I mean, we there's absolutely no dress code, but I try to be quasi respectful mm-hmm. of having a job. What is what is the job of writing like? I mean, we ha- I had Ian Edwards on here, and he's been in the writers' rooms for like decades. But like, what has your experience been like in the writers' room? My experience in the writer's room has been incredible, but I do have to preface it by saying that 
every writer's room is very different. The way every show operates is different. Mm -hmm. So like not just the experience of who you work with, but how that room operates. It really depends on who's running the room and who you're writing for and with. So like our our day is typically 9, 30, 10 a.m. to 6, 7 o'clock. Okay. So not crazy hours. Like I've heard of some writer's rooms that go till 11 p.m., 2 a.m. on some nights doing rewrites and stuff. Our our writer's room is pretty respectful of our lives outside of it. Like, I still, almost every night, have time to go and do sets after the show. Right. Or after, after the day of work. Um, but it really, it boils down to, like, the way we operate is we typically spend, like, the first two months of... And we have a very long writer's room. We have, like, an eight-month room, which is way longer. Oh, that's above average? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, for, again, it varies. But from my understanding, most shows go for maybe 20 weeks and and we're close to 35 or 40 um, mm. um but we spend the first few months all in the room together all day planning out the season planning out the story arcs for the episodes and the characters and then once we go into breaking down individual episodes that's when we spend less time collectively and kind of go off into our own offices to work on whatever we specialize in for that episode so it's like a very collaborative effort from the start that can that then gets broken down into different people doing their specialties that's what's beautiful about mrs mazel is like my wife and i got instantly hooked and a big part of that is the writing and when i had beth stelling on here she talked about on crashing they would almost just have tent poles of like okay we want pete and uh his ex-wife's boyfriend to end up in bed together how that happens we don't know but we like they would just set these little like finish lines or checkpoints to hit yeah. is that kind of how no our, ours is the opposite i uh -huh. so i write with um amy sherman paladino and dan paladino who are the creators of the show are mm -hmm. also the head writers and they are meticulous with their writing and one thing that's different about our show from most other shows is from what i understand most other shows the writers have to be there at the taping and at the filming. So if a line right. doesn't work, writers are there to pitch alts. On our show, the actors and actresses have to be word perfect. So like once the script is finalized, that's what they're saying. There's no like, <laughs> there's no, this joke isn't working. Can we get an alt? It's like, no, this is the joke. Whoa. Say the joke. Like our actors and actresses don't miss a the, an of, a but. They are literally word for word, word perfect on our script. So... There's no re like there's dozens of rewrites before the script is finalized amongst ourselves, but once that script is out, that's the script. Mm. And how do you when you talked about you first kind of beat out the season and then you go into individual episodes? Is it just looking at where we're starting in this season, where we want to end up, and then kind of reverse engineering it? Like how do you build yeah. a story? Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to what are we trying to get accomplished for the show and for each character. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that a big lesson in writing in general is just having a vision. And like, if you know where you're planning on going, it makes everything else fall in line much easier. So obviously Midge is the main character in the show. So her story is the most important, but there's so many different pieces to her world that you kind of map out every character's journey. And that's not to say it's so rigid that like in week one, we're like, this is what happens all season for every character. Things change within the realm of the season, like what we plan on happening. Episode five, when we were writing episode one, might change based on how we kind of reconfigure things as we're going along. But in general, you try to map out each character's journey individually and then what it means in the universe of the show so that it can all kind of come together and work off of each other. And how 
in terms of writing the show, how much is it bouncing ideas off verbally versus actually like sitting down and putting it on the page? Uh, there's a lot of, again, we like, because our show writers and our showrunners, the Paladinos, they're like legendary TV writers. So for people that don't know, they met years ago as writers on the original Roseanne. Mm -hmm. uh, they've gone on, they created the Gilmore Girls. Dan was the showrunner for Family Guy for a while. So like, these are these are like classic TV writers. Right, right. Who, it's not like a show where it's their first hurrah and they're kind of feeling out. Like they know exactly what they want. They know what they're doing. And Amy is very much a boss. So it's like it's not one of those writers' rooms where everyone comes in equally pitching. It's like we all shut the fuck up <laughs> and listen to what Amy says, and then we listen to what Dan says, and then when they need us, we fill in. The the I've, I've given this example one time before. I feel like our writer's room operates a lot like the Chicago Bulls during the Jordan years, where it's like you had Michael Jordan, you had Scottie Pippen, that's Amy and Dan. I just have to be Steve Kerr. You know, like mm -hmm. when they pass me the ball, I need to hit the open jumper and we'll win a championship. I don't need to be Michael Jordan. I don't need to be Scottie Pippen. I just need to do my job when they give me the opportunity to do my job. Um. So, so I'm not in there trying to pitch – a million jokes a day it's just like i listen to what they want and then when i have ideas that are worth sharing i do it and that a big lesson for the writers room that i would say to aspiring writers a lot of it is you're going to be spending 8 10 12 hours a day with these people you need to learn how to get along like personalities have to mesh for a show to do well so as valuable as it is to have good things to say it's also very valuable to know when to shut the fuck up Hmm. You know, like hmm. writers rooms are annoying if there's eight people in there constantly trying to one up each other and get the funniest joke. And sometimes the biggest thing you can do to advance your position in the room is learning how to listen, especially if you're listening to people who are smarter than you and better at you than what you're trying to do. Do you have any other tips for writers? That's gold, man. Uh, no, I mean, you know, there's like all the cliches of writing, which are cliches for a reason. They're true. Like write what you know, draw on real experience, show, don't tell. Little things like that all matter. But honestly, a, a nugget of wisdom I would say is like if you're ever fortunate enough to be working with great writers and people who have been doing what you hope to do, pay attention. Like mm. take advantage of the situation. Don't be on your phone, you know, checking Twitter and Instagram when like you might be missing nuggets of wisdom that will further your career from legendary people around you. And that's got to be gratifying that you booked this writing gig. They saw your stand up. Yeah. And we're like, and, we've got to hire this guy. Well, it was gratifying on, on several levels. So, first of all, the show is about um, a woman who ends up, like, kind of backhandedly falling into the world of stand-up. So, they wanted stand-up comedians in the room. And so, season one, I went in pretty much as a consultant for the stand-up. But I made myself invaluable in the room because it's also about a Jewish family and even though Amy Sherman Palladino's father was Jewish, she's not very religious, doesn't know a lot about it. But the family we're writing about are like pretty observant Jews. And even though I was brought in to help with the stand up where I was the biggest asset, ended up kind of helping with the Jewish religion stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's that's one of those things where I grew up in a very religious home and I was always proud of being Jewish. But as you can imagine, any kid being brought up with a lot of religion, like I was also kind of resentful of having so much religion force upon me or like different things that I couldn't do because I had to observe the religion. And then two, three decades later, so much of my upbringing became the exact reason why I succeed in certain fields. So it's like, so cool. you never know when life experience that you didn't necessarily appreciate growing up will come into play. And so it's like, 
I got this job and I'm thriving in this job on a very successful show, partly because of stand, but also partly because of the religious foundation my parents gave me that I didn't even really appreciate at the time. Mm, you're almost so, chosen, you could say. <laughs> ah, nice. I yeah. see what you did there. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, I mean another another piece of advice I would give to writers is just like draw on your life experience. You never know exactly where that experience is going to take you, but like be grateful for whatever upbringing and experience you have because that is what adds to the voice that you can then contribute to a project. So maybe advice for comics, which is a lot of this show, a comic that's wanting to get into a writer's room, what advice do you have for how they can actually get a seat at the table? I mean, honestly, it's, it's luck meeting preparation. You know, like you can have, writing is incredibly competitive. So many people want to do it and there's only a few spots. So... So luck definitely plays a part into it, but when you're lucky enough to have the opportunity, you have to be prepared for that opportunity, which mm. means having your spec scripts, having your pilot scripts, having something to say, um, you know, so it's like you have to do the work when no one's looking to be ready when people are looking is what I would say. Boom. Yes. Mic drop. There you go. And when you say, what'd you say? You said, have your spec scripts, have your pilot. What, yeah, the tangibles they need. Yeah, and, and, you don't, and you don't know what necessarily they're going to ask for. For those that don't, a spec script is when you write a script of a show that exists. So, like, if you were to write uh, your version of Modern Family or whatever, you mm -hmm. know, like, you write a 30-minute sitcom that people already know. And what that does is it proves that you can write for characters that already exist. It shows that you can mold your voice to a voice of a show and fit in because like if you get hired to write on season four of a show that's already been running those characters already speak a certain way that world already operates in a certain way so that's proven that your mind can mold to the universe that's already built in mm -hmm. then a pilot script is your own original idea and that shows where your voice actually stands out um, and so those are two key components of having samples but again I got a very high-end writing job that's literally changed my life and didn't even submit a writing packet. That came off of my stand-up. And then more importantly, like stand-up is what got me in the room with the Paladinos, but it was my interview that got me the job. And that spoke more to what I was talking about earlier of just like personalities meshing. Yeah, we just talked yeah. for two hours and they could tell I was a person they could tolerate being around every day in a room. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. But how you write for yourself and stand up and how you write for these voices, multiple actors on screen. Like, yeah. is there how do you how do you start to put it through a f different filters like that? Well, it's been crazy because it's not just writing for myself versus multiple characters, but I'm writing for multiple characters who are doing stand up in the 60s. So it's oh, also yeah. like a very <laughs> different style. It's like, um so what was the question? How do I do that? It's like you almost have to if okay, I'm writing for my own personal stand up, I put it through this filter. I'm writing for Midge right now, I put it through this filter. Like you almost have to have all these different voices going on in your head in a sense, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's where part of the skill comes into play. Mm -hmm. Like really good writers can write for other people. Um and I think for stand-ups who are looking to get into writing, one skill that makes stand-ups stand a great stand-up is being able to open your eyes to other experiences and being able to be empathetic or aware of other viewpoints so that mm. you can then connect from your own viewpoint to theirs. So it's really a matter of stepping outside yourself a little bit. And there's a lot of trial and error. Like, I submit a lot of jokes and a lot of storylines that don't get accepted for the show, and then a few do, you know? So, like, you got to take your shots and just hope that you're putting quality into any of the work that you put forward. 
And you submitted a lot of to a lot of other shows before actually booking this. Yeah, and, and that's what was so interesting is I submitted probably no lie twenty to thirty writing packets over the years to other shows that I always got to the second round or the final round and then ultimately didn't win out, didn't get the job. But that's kind of what I was talking about of like doing the work while no one is looking to be mm. prepared. It's like if you really want to be a writer, then you have to be willing to spend hours and days and weeks and months doing packets for free that might get you in the room in hopes of one day hitting. You know, it's like you can't be lazy with the shit if you really want it, then you got to be willing to do it. And, and what that means is doing it for free until someone is willing to pay you. And when it comes to a spec script, let's say you're submitting to Modern Family. Do you want to send a spec script about Modern Family or at least the tangential no, you, show? No, you don't. I mean, again, it's like the rules have changed so much and they're constantly dynamic. So I, I don't want to be giving advice that is right for one person and wrong for the other. There's no like concrete rules. But mm -hmm. from what I've heard, you don't want to send a script of the show you're trying to write for to that show partly because from a liability standpoint if they were to end up doing an episode down the road that was similar to your idea they don't want any kind of confusion or lawsuit of like feeling like they stole your idea oh, right. so you want to send a spec script of another show that everyone has seen because you know it has to be a popular show so they most likely know the characters in the show you're writing for but it shouldn't be the show you're trying to write for because that's where there's like a conflict of interest with ideas oh that makes sense so maybe even transitioning into your stand-up writing, because what's what's cool, what's been cool about doing this show, and especially Atlanta comedians, like I'm, I've seen you at like open mics, and yeah. now you're like on Conan and like James Corden and doing all this great stuff. So your stand-up writing was always something that you were known for, and just your ability just to make humor out of really just standing and delivering, which you still do. Yeah, like there's no. Even you, you came up in urban rooms. I came up in urban rooms, and you never took the tip of like exaggerating. You always just hit them yeah. right in the chest with it. Are you trying to say I'm a shitty performer? I'm no, just, I'm just no, joking. no, I'm you're just strategic. No, I'm, not, no, I'm just messing. With you. Yeah, I, no, I've, yeah, I mean, I've always been much more writing. I have confidence that my joke is going to hit, as opposed to having to oversell a bad punchline or a bad premise with a funny face. I, yeah, that's not my style. One of my favorite quotes from your first interview with us was you said a lot of your best jokes didn't start out as funny they started out as interesting yeah is that still true yeah yeah i mean there's a million different styles of comedy my style is personal 90 percent of my act is talking about me or what's going on in my life and so the premises have to be coming from an interesting place rather than a funny place because it has to have stood out to me in my own life like something that happened as interesting or unique to make me want to write about it yeah mm-hmm and one of my favorite jokes I've heard you recently was the subway joke, and mm -hmm. you did it on you did it on your most recent Conan episode. Corden, yeah. Oh, you did it on Corden? Yeah. Oh, I was listening to him this morning too, and I guess I just got them all mixed up in my head. No, the Corden you did the wedding stuff, or did yeah, you close yeah, on the, with subway. the subway. Yeah, I'm telling you. you yeah, you're <laughs> trying to tell me what I just did, <laughs> motherfucker. I'm it was. I'm telling you, <laughs> it was Corden. Uh, but what what was it, it, interesting about that though is. <laughs> JP at Conan uh -huh. has been great to me. He gave me my first opportunities on late night. He's awesome to work with, so I would never say a bad word about him. But because I had the door open at Conan, I went to Conan. Before I did Corden, the the set was different because I hadn't like gotten married yet, so the stuff up top was different. But I had the subway joke, and when I wrote that joke, I was like, this is a late night joke. 
and I sent it to JP and JP was actually like, I think that's a great story in a longer set or like if you ever do the couch on late night, that's a great bit, but I don't think that's good for a late night stand-up set. Hmm. And again, no disrespect to JP. He's been amazing to me and he's great at what he does. So like, but I, I knew it was a good late night joke. So that's just to say like, trust yourself as well, where even though a late night booker who I've worked with before, whose judgment I trust, told me it wasn't a late night joke. I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. And I took it somewhere else and, and it did really well on another late night set. So it's like, always be willing to listen to people who know better than you, but also like at the end of the day, trust yourself. That Mark Norman actually said his, I think it was his first Conan appearance. They told him like, to take out one of the jokes because they didn't think it would work, and he did the joke anyway, yeah. and it killed. Was it the Puerto Ricans thing? It I, may I think have been. Yeah. I can't remember what he said it was, but yeah. it was like an example of it, it killed. So to know what he's like, he got off, and no right. one said anything because it worked. Right. You know, it's trusting. So, yeah, it's like by the time you're doing late night as a stand up, you've done so much stand up that you know what works, and that's not to say you know better than the people who professionally book, but it's like. If in your gut, you know from your stand-up experience doing it night in, night out, especially with certain jokes, like this works and this is what it will work for, mm -hmm. I knew the Subway bit was a late-night joke. And so because one late-night booker didn't want to put on their show, I found someone who would. And what is the preparation like for a show like that? Because with Last Comic Standing, you had said you were like walking around, like going through the jokes in your head. Yeah. Like how meticulous have these late night sets been? Well, I mean, the more experience you get in comedy, the more comfortable you are. Mm -hmm. um, I remember like the first time I did Conan, I was so nervous that I couldn't enjoy it because it was Conan and he was always my favorite. And because it was my first late night set. I was literally running the set over and over and over in the back alleys of the studio up until 10 minutes before I shot it. And by the time I did Corden, this is three, four years after my first late night set. It was my third late night set, and I'm just a much more seasoned comedian in general. So it was like, it was one of those things where I was just like, yeah, I know the set. It's five minutes, and I've been doing it. So it's like, before you do a late night set, you obviously want to have it nailed down. You have to have it down to a specific timing of like under five minutes for it to get approved for TV anyway. So I ran the set a lot that week or the two weeks leading up to the show to make sure it all fit. But I didn't like wake up that morning and recite the set 20 times to myself. I just kind of trusted that it was in my head. You know, oh, I was okay. like, I know the set. This The set works. I have faith in it. I know how to perform. I know what late night is like. And so I just was way more calm about it and had a great time doing it. How did the two experiences compare, like doing a late night set on Conan versus Corden? Uh, they're actually, they actually were very different just in terms of the setup. Like Corden and Conan as hosts were both amazing. They were both incredibly kind to me. Both Bookers, JP and Ryan were awesome to work with. So like I had nothing but positive experiences in terms of doing the show with the intangibles outside of actually performing. Um, what was different about Conan and Corden is Conan is much more like the big studio audience that's 30 feet away from you. And Corden actually has floor seats with crowd members two feet away. So I was actually more comfortable performing on Corden just because the literal setup of who you perform to feels much more like a comedy club. There are people three feet away from you like would happen in a front row of a comedy club as opposed to Conan very much feels like this is a studio audience that mm. you cannot reach out and touch. Is there a teleprompter at these shows? Uh, they 
there's a teleprompter in that they offer you not word for word they offer you to put your set list on a teleprompter in uh -huh. case you like black out they give you that option the first time i did conan i had it up there just because i was so scared that i was going to get out there and just completely blank <laughs> right uh the second and third late night sets i didn't i didn't want it because i didn't want to have anything to take my eye off of the audience and just like being in the moment you yeah. know because i was like once you know the teleprompter is there even if you don't need it you kind of look at it and i didn't want it to throw me in the middle of the performance so again that came from being more comfortable and knowing i was going to remember my shit I, you know i wasn't worried about it what about backstage? Do you get like cool gifts or is there food or like what's yeah. going on back there? Uh, Conan, they give you, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's like a very famous Chicago popcorn where it's a mix of cheddar and caramel corn. Um, that's like their stage gift. And then there's all kinds of just food in the green room available. Corden, they asked me what I wanted in the green room and I just said like, fruit and vegetables because uh, i'm not trying to have like a turkey leg before i go out <laughs> on national tv um and then and then there were some cool give there was like a whole lot i think it was a sponsor there was like lotions and a face mask that i gave to my wife and she was thrilled with it uh -huh. and a water bottle and a mug and stuff like that but you're obviously not doing it for the gifts here. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But I don't even, yeah, I don't even know what i haven't even been backstage of a show like that yet so i'm just curious of like what it is yeah like a fly on the wall. Yeah, it's just a nice green room where they give you a mirror and a couch and yeah. food. <laughs> <laughs> but when you, when we've been in green rooms that it can literally be like the closet in right. the back of this restaurant. No, it's it's a, like, it's a proper oh, yeah. no, it's a dressing room. <laughs> uh -huh. Another thing I would advise uh, to any stand-ups if you get your first late night set, I made the mistake my first late night set of having a whole bunch of friends in the room. Ooh. So like I had my manager and then I brought like four or five people to be in there and it ended up being too much, you know, because it was like I was trying to go over my set. I was already nervous and there were people talking like you don't want to bring friends back there and be like, everyone shut the fuck up. So they were having a good time and it was just kind of distracting. Mm -hmm. And now after that, when I've done it, I, Esther, my wife, uh, and then I'll have like my manager or my agent and maybe one friend because they all like Clayton came with me the second Conan. Nice. Um, just because like, it's good to have a support system. You don't want to sit there alone, but you also want to have a small group of people who you're comfortable being like, hey, guys, can we just kind of like be silent for a minute so you can have your moment of peace? You know, it's like you don't want to be too overwhelmed before you go out. You want to be able to concentrate and have your own space. Do you get to meet? Did you meet Corden or Conan before the set or after the set? Uh, I met Conan the first time I ever did Conan right before i went out like i'm standing there at the curtain it's the commercial break and that's the most nerve-wracking because they'll tell you like okay we just went to commercial you're next and you just kind of stand behind the curtain you can hear the the like studio kind of shifting and right before i went out and before we came back from commercial break conan came and like shook my hand and met me and that was awesome but it was also like i was in my zone trying to get ready to prepare <laughs> for conan and then here conan comes so it was like awesome to meet him but also probably couldn't have been worse timing because because like, i just like didn't want to meet conan right before i'm worried about like my opening line right uh the second time i had already done it so like he didn't come by the green room or anything but what was cool it just so happened the second time i did conan was the night of their holiday party because it was like middle of december and he invited me to come to the holiday party that night and that night i went and actually got to hang out with conan and he could not have been sweeter and more complimentary he's just like a really good guy mm -hmm. uh and then Corden actually came and hung out in my dressing room for five or ten minutes before the show and I didn't even realize what an impact that would have on me but it actually made me so much more comfortable like 
I didn't meet suit and tie James Corden, who was out in front of the studio audience. He was just kind of himself, and he was just having a drink, shooting the shit, and it was just, like, way more casual, and it made me feel much better about going and performing on his show. So it was... Both both of them were incredibly kind to mm-hmm. me. So yeah, I, they were great. And let's let's get into weeds a little bit on that subway joke, just because yeah. it is the most recent late night set, not the Conan set. It was the Corden set. Sure. But I'm glad you remembered. I do. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. I'm a fan. I'm a fan, Noah. And it's it's one of those things that comedians strive to do. Is here's a life experience happening. How can I make this a bit that's like laugh, 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 laugh on stage? So what was the evolution of that? Well, it was funny because literally, you know, when something weird happens in your life, again, whether it's interesting or weird or whatever, the joke isn't fully formed. But as soon as I saw this dude flip out over onions at Sunway uh, at Subway, he left and I was like, thank you, God. That's, <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, I just got three minutes out of that. I don't know how. I don't know where the joke is yet. But what I just saw is funny. And I know that's going to be a joke. And then from there, the first thing I did is I took out my phone, hit the notepad, and I didn't try to write punchlines or jokes. I just wrote down everything I remember happening. I just hit the beats of the event of like crazy guy flipping out the things he said. And I wanted to mark it down accurate. Like he really did say, you know, onions are cheap. If it's not free, I don't want it. He really did say, I'd like to speak to your manager, all that shit. Because if I could like remember the events correctly, then I could take my time to frame how I want to phrase it to make it funnier, like what the reactions and kind of set the scene. So first I just hit the beats. And then for like the next two weeks, I kind of tried telling the story on stage and I tried different punchlines and I played around with different pacing. Sometimes I tried to make it a short, quick joke. Sometimes I really tried to drag it on and make like a seven minute story. And that's when I found out places that like just weren't funny that I had to cut. And, you know, it's, it's the Goldilocks, you know, too mm-hmm. hot, too cold. Mm-hmm. Eventually you just tinker with it until it's just right. And then when it was just right, I got on tape and sent it in to Corden. So when you're talking about I was trying out these different punchlines, are you on the paper, like writing out the story and trying to inject punchlines? Are you more on stage, like just trying to res- tell the story organically? A little bit of both. Like I would write out different lines I wanted to try, but then in the moment would also possibly riff or feel it out. And and again, it's just like it's about being aware. Being comedian is just about being aware in the mm-hmm. moment of when something funny or interesting is happening. It's about being aware while you're on stage with purpose, whether you wrote it out or whether you're riffing, like have the awareness on and off stage to know what's working. And also don't be stubborn like the audience will let you know if it's funny as you're working on it. So like if you have a joke that you really believe in, but certain parts of it aren't working, instead of trying to force that part that's not working to work, try a new direction, try a different word, try different pacing, try different inflection until you get consistent results that are proving that you got it right. How many times will you try a joke before you're like, okay, I guess it's just not a joke or like a part of a joke? Uh, like a part of this story you're talking about. How many times have you tried something before? Two, three times. Two, and then you kind of get a feel that maybe. Yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes I'll even say a joke and as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh, never mind. Right. And then yeah. other times you're like, there's something here. But there are also, there are also times when I've had something that I wanted to do on stage, whether it was a premise or a line that I just couldn't get to work. And I put it away and forgot about it. And three years later, it became a great bit. Like mm-hmm. what I did on my second Conan, the the whole thing about like Jesus from the Jewish perspective. Yeah. 
that was an idea I had in my notebook for probably five years that I couldn't get to work until one day I just figured it out kind of out of nowhere. But it's like it's one of those things where as a comedian, we're always growing with life experience. So you never know what new references or what new viewpoint might naturally come to you just from life experience. That'll suddenly be the key that unlocks the joke. So if something's not working two times, three times, that doesn't mean give up on it for good. I mean, maybe sometimes, sometimes just shit isn't funny. Right. Yeah. But, but also like, it's okay to come back to something years later because you have a whole new tool set as a human being to possibly work with it. What unlocked the subway joke? Was there like an aha moment where like, oh, I finally found like the premise of the direction? No, the, su- the subway joke was unlocked from the beginning. Like that, that was just a funny thing I witnessed. Okay. You know, that was just dumb luck of being a person out in the world, seeing a dude flip out over a sandwich. Like mm-hmm. that was just the comedy gods giving me three minutes by putting me in that subway on that day. Um, but, but it was like two weeks of playing around with it to where I got three minutes of that joke that I really loved and then taking that three minutes after I played with it and stuck to what I thought was good and doing it in different rooms, like doing it on a 10-minute bar show set in New York, doing it on a 45-minute set in Dayton, Ohio at a Funny Bone and like realizing that it works coast to coast, comedy club to bar show. It's just a funny joke. And Mm -hmm. then from there, having the confidence to be like, okay, this is clearly universally funny and I have the punches in the right place. Where, Where were most of the punches come from? Is it the details? Are there any embellishments? Um, I mean, not embe- I, I really didn't embellish his behavior. The details would be in my responses that I got. And that's where you have the luxury of making them up in your own time later on, where mm-hmm. like in that joke where he says, you just lost a customer. He really did say that. Of course, in the moment, I wasn't thinking like, dude, their spokesman was Jared. But that's one where like I got to sit with it for a week and be like, OK, what about the subway universe? is funny. What references can I make? And I was like, people think about Subway. What's one of the most infamous parts about Subway? Unfortunately, that their spokesman was a fucking pedophile. You know, so it's like, how can I work that in tastefully? Because I also, it's like, you work in Jared, all of a sudden what was a really funny joke about a dude losing his shit over a sandwich becomes a pedophilia joke. And that's a whole different, darker direction that was not the point of the joke. Right. So that's, again, we're like finding little ways to tinker with it where you can make a Jared reference because it's synonymous with Subway without it dominating the joke and going in a whole different direction. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, like, you say embellishments or add-ons. It's like that's where the time in the shadows, that's where writing in your notebook or figuring it out on stage comes into play of just tinkering with little things here or there to find the right mixture. And I like you were saying how, okay, this happened at Subway. What? When I think of Subway, what all do I think of? It's like, what right. else can I associate within the joke? Right. Is that kind of your strategy there? Yeah, it's just it's just being creative. Or even the opening yeah. line where I was like, this guy flipped out at a Subway. And to be clear, I'm talking about the sandwich shop, not the underground train. Because in New York, if you say Subway, people are thinking about the train. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just like playing with language, playing with the world that's built in. Like, every, most things have a certain connotation in people's minds. So you have to be aware of that as well. It's like... When I bring this up, where is their mind naturally going to go? And then from there, where can I take them? Ooh, that's gold. And was the kid, was was he kind of an addition, the kid at the subway employee? Yeah. That was pre- he was like a, like just yeah, kind of like I mean that, or was that? Yeah, and that, that was also part of what was built in funny, where I just lucked out. Is like, uh-huh. not only was I fortunate enough to witness this psychopath flipping out over a sandwich, but I also got to witness it happening to 
a teenager who couldn't have cared less, you mm-hmm. know? So it was like that world of contrast. It's entirely possible that the joke wouldn't have been funny. Like if that guy would have flipped out and it was another older guy making the sandwich who flipped out back, then maybe it's a vicious argument. Maybe that was funny or maybe it's not. And, and I leave Subway without a joke because I'm like, what the fuck did I just see? <laughs> right. But the contrast of this dude's angry energy versus an employee who couldn't have cared less, I was like, that's hilarious. <laughs> and he, did he actually say, I'm coming back the next morning? Yeah. Or was, oh, okay. Yeah, he really did ask, like, when will your manager be back? And the kid really did say, like, 8 a.m. And I don't know if the kid was just being a dick or if Subway does open at 8 a.m. But again, that's where, like, later the embellishment, of course, I didn't take out my phone and set my alarm. But, like... Mm-hmm. That's where I was like, okay, what's funny about this guy coming back at 8 a.m.? And then how can I implant myself in the joke to get an additional punchline, whether it happened or not? And that's where the whole part of setting my phone. And and also, again, that's like playing with the language, playing with society. The reason my line about setting the alarm for 730 is funny is because when I say, and that's when I finally took out my cell phone, people assume I'm about to talk about videotaping this guy losing his shit or putting it on Instagram. And I went in a different direction. No one's thinking I'm going to set my alarm to come see him flip out on the manager the next morning. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, just be creative. And how, yeah. And it is kind of how you set it like in that pace as well to where you're setting up the expectation that, Oh, he's going to film this, but it's actually right. And, And that again, it's like what I was talking about with Jared of like, okay, I take out my cell phone in people's minds they're thinking i'm gonna film it now where can i take them in a direction they weren't expecting boom misdirect yeah and finding the sometimes the hardest part of a joke is like ending it like how can i end on a laugh what is this closure yeah well well the 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 hardest part about comedy it kind of like how i was talking about in uh, in a writer's room there's a skill set of knowing what to say and a skill set of knowing when to shut the fuck up in a joke, there's a skill set of knowing when to add punchlines and there's a skill set of knowing when the joke is over. Like one of the worst things comedians can do is over tag a joke and take something that was hilarious and make it unfunny because they couldn't stop trying for more and more. La- like, don't be selfish with the laughs. If you have a great punchline, know when to step away and just let it be. And how did you find because it ends with like, I'll have an onion sandwich. Yeah, a callback. Yeah. So is that. And I noticed that in watching your set last night as well, like you're, you're good at kind of just slipping in those callbacks at different times. It's very clever. So was that, when did you come up with the, the button of it that I'll have an onion sandwich? Was that an early on or was that something you were trying to figure out? No, I, that was probably a week or two in of testing with it. Like I had played with it and I think, I think I probably had a few iterations of like that wasn't even necessarily the ending, but it's again just playing with it on stage, seeing what gets a good final laugh, a clever callback, and just realizing that is the natural end of that joke. That's where I want to end that story. And how important is it to understand like the premise or like what is this joke about? And I'm I'm selfishly asking this as well because when I, when I got married, I cried a lot and I got booed by my officiant. Like all this happened, and I'm right. like. This is hilarious, and I have yet to make it translate to stage. Um, well, I mean, I guess it's important to know what you're trying to highlight for the humor, but when you talk about, like, what is this joke about, mm-hmm. you know, th- that depends on the joke. Like, sometimes there are jokes where you're trying to make a greater point. Like, there are some jokes that you really are trying to be philosophical or, like, shed light on something that's important to you, and there are some jokes that are just jokes, and you don't have to make it deeper than it is. So it's like... The subway joke is not like a microcosm of the working man's struggle against <laughs> a power dilemma with an angry man who has power because of capital. It was like, no, it was a fucking psychopath who ordered a sandwich, and I'm not making it deeper than that, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. 
your joke about crying at the wedding that that's loaded because it's like weddings hold a lot of value the idea of a man not being able to cry you know like there is something separate from being funny there is like social commentary on like what you got booed for crying but it's the most important day of your life so like why wouldn't you cry oh because you're a man you're not allowed to cry at your own wedding like there's something beyond just being funny about that but i also wouldn't waste time like overthinking it i would say write the joke like whatever naturally jumps out to you about it being funny Mm -hmm. because there's also something about funny about you being booed at your wedding separate for why like that's the thing is like on one hand it's about a man crying and the commentary on that but on the other hand it's just about like a groom getting booed at his wedding for whatever reason find out where the agreement between those two principles are i would say yeah because the misdirect i have right now is that i was crying be, I kind of set up how terrible wedding planning is. And then the misdirect is I started crying because I realized the wedding planning was over. And that's really as far as it's gotten. That's funny. I would I would try maybe something about like there's also something about they're booing you because you're crying, which made you cry harder. But for a different reason, like first you were crying tears of joy and now you're <laughs> crying because you're being booed at your wedding. And that was hurtful. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's. A million ways to explore and play around with it and see what feels best coming from you. It also has to be in your voice. Right. You know, so like it depends on the jokes you told before that. It depends on the jokes you plan on telling after because everything sets the stage. You know, like if you're doing a longer set, all jokes aren't attached and related, but they do all affect how they're received by the audience. Like Mm. the order of the jokes you tell matter. You know, like I have I just got married and I have certain jokes about marriage and about my wife that I can't tell until the end of my set because I need to make sure the audience likes me up top so they'll go with me on this ride of potentially inappropriate or like offensive stuff because they already know it's coming from a good silly place, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like the order of your jokes and the order of how you set your set up matters because the way people perceive you going into the joke will affect how they interpret it as you say it. Yeah, I have noticed that like, I have a joke about like shopping at Goodwill and then I have a joke later on about a job paying $8 an hour and that it should include drugs. Yeah. And I notice when I do the Goodwill beforehand, it sets up the expectation that he's cheap or he, he's always trying to like save money however he can. So when it should include drugs, it hits harder because they have the context that, oh, he shops at Goodwill and yeah. it's all about saving money. Yeah. Every, everything matters, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like I'm not. I'm not like an edgy comic who's out there saying offensive shit, but I have a few jokes with some bite in it. And I usually save those for later in the set when I've earned goodwill, not goodwill, but like Uh when I've earned, when I've earned the audience's trust because they know it's like coming from a playful place because they've had 30 minutes of other jokes to set the stage of who I actually am going into those jokes. Are you disciplined and do you write every day? No. Type deal? No. (laughs) No. Okay. I I write when I'm inspired to write. Okay. So like I've I've never been the kind of person that can write from six to eight o'clock or from ten to two. Like I can't write on a schedule. I can only write when I'm inspired. But because of that, I respect it over everything. So like no matter what I'm doing, when I have an idea, I make sure to stop and write it. Yeah, and you said in the first interview, like you honor that idea. Yeah. By taking the time to write whether it's two PM or two AM, honor that idea and write it down. Yeah, and that's that's the same. Like my process hasn't changed in that I can't I can't force when I'll be creative, but when the creativity comes, I prioritize that over everything. So now that you're at this point in your career where 
the the sh- you've been working on like and we talk about show business you've been working hard on the show but now the business is picking up as well and it would be interesting i just i just read about you and clayton who clayton's been on here a few times as well clayton english but it's it's funny you guys like started together and now you're getting to work on a show together we were the show got canceled oh the show got canceled yeah because of the the turner time warner merger and and you know that was an important lesson in show business that wasn't a new lesson there are ups and downs in this business and you Mm -hmm. take it all in stride but yeah so for those that don't know clayton and i first we had a pilot order like First of all, to sell an idea for a show and even get a pilot order yeah. is such a difficult thing. Then for that pilot to get shot is such a difficult thing. And then for that pilot to get shot off of an idea you sold and then get picked up and ordered to series is probably a one in a million worst chance. So like that happened. Clayton and I sold an idea. The pilot got shot. We sold the show and it got ordered to series. Series pickup. Clayton and I were going to be hosting and executive producing our own show that got ordered for 10 episodes, which was like unreal. And we were going to do it in Atlanta, which was unreal because this is where we started. And uh, and then three weeks into the writer's room, they canceled the show because and this and this is one of those things where like no wrongdoing of our own. True TV, who had bought and ordered our show at that time, True TV is Turner. Turner got in a merger bought out by Time Warner and the new executives from Time Warner fired all the people from True that were responsible for our show. Like all the people from True that ordered our pilot and then ordered it to series lost their jobs and the new regime from Time Warner didn't want to be responsible for a show that they had nothing to do with creating or picking up. Mm-hmm. So it was like Clayton and I did nothing wrong and it wasn't even that the people from Time Warner, it's not like they saw the pilot and were like, oh, no, this isn't us. They were just like, it's not ours. Clean house. We want nothing to do with it. And so the show got canceled. And, and that's one of those things where it's the ups and downs of show business. Like one minute you have a dream coming true and then the next minute it's just gone. What was that like? Like, did you have like are you like, oh, this is like fate. This is culminating. We're friends. We're shooting in Atlanta. Was there that moment of like we did it? And then, eh. well, of course, I was initially disappointed, but I also... I truly felt like it was a weird blessing in disguise. Like, first of all, Clayton and I both had the good fortune of having other things going on. So it wasn't like this was our one shot. You know, it was like I'm still working on Maisel. I knew I was going back for season three. So it's not like I was suddenly unemployed with nowhere to go. Clayton's comedy and acting is killing it. So it's not like it's not like this was our baby. And if this got snatched away, we were suddenly on the streets with no money again. Like. We were very lucky to be in a position in our careers where this was one of a few things we were doing, yeah. which was which was helpful just financially and and egotistically speaking. Um, and then what I've noticed in this business is like opportunities come and go. You have to learn how to react to the wins and the losses all the same because they're both going to happen. Um, and. You know, it's that whole, like, God fucking close the door, opens a window. Where, like, I don't know what the next thing is, but I do know that whatever my next project or my next opportunity is, I wouldn't have been available for if this show didn't get canceled. Like, Mrs. Maisel, I had submitted three different packets for shows I really wanted to get hired for that I did not get hired. And then if I did get hired for those, I would not have been available to submit for Mrs. Maisel, which ended up literally changing my life and became a Golden Globe and Emmy award winning show. Mm -hmm. Whereas those other shows I wanted to get hired on are all canceled. 
So like you don't know where the next opportunity is going to come from. You don't know where the next blessing is coming from. And if you're going to be in this business, you have to be tough enough to take it all in stride. Shit is going to get picked up. Shit's going to get canceled. You're going to have great shows. You're going to have bad shows. But if you're all doing it for the love of the art, the love of the game, and you're working hard, if you're talented and hardworking, things will line up and fall into place. Fire. Ooh. Noah. That's gold, man. Thank you so much for doing yeah. this, dude. This yeah, my is, pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been amazing. It's cool just to see comics, you know, because we've had like Dulce Sloan on here, who's, you know, like it's just cool to see all these comedians in the arc of their career where it is like you're, you start comedy with these aspirations and it's like, oh, you're like doing them. Yeah, it's it's been wild to see a lot <laughs> of the people we all came up with. Like the, my generation of Atlanta comics are all killing it and and all across the board you know there's like there's a lot of us doing very well in the mainstream and corporate route of show creation and tv and then you got people like carlos who is arguably the most famous comic on the underground like 85 south and what carlos is doing yeah. is mind-blowing and and it's all on something he built on his own so you know there's no right or wrong way to do it there's no one way to do it just do it just do it well before we get out of here man um I know you gotta you gotta take a nap in your pajamas <laughs> yeah. here, but um, that was my attempt at a dig, which that just reminded me. I and thinking of the opportunities, I remember Roast Battle came here and taped, and I went against Dulce, and I was like, "Oh, Comedy Central, here we go!" But then they cut out our part. Yeah, and that was a moment of, and I didn't tell anyone I was on it either because I had heard. I think Andy Sanford was the first person who told me he had a moment. Where he's like, oh, this is it. And then it didn't happen. Yeah, and that from then on, time. I was yeah. like, I'm never saying anything. Yeah. So that just reminded me of like taping Roast Battle here and then it not airing. And I was just like, you know what? I'm actually grateful my TV debut wasn't like on Roast Battle. Yeah. In hindsight. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times things that you wanted in the moment, looking back, you can realize it's a good thing it didn't happen. Mm hmm. Well, I'm glad this happened, and thanks for taking the time, man. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, before we get out of here, is there anything else you want the world to know? No. <laughs> uh, uh, when, when is this coming out? I don't know yet. Uh, it'll be a couple weeks. Okay, well, if this comes out before December 6th, Season 3 of Mrs. Maisel premieres on Amazon Prime, okay. so check out Mrs. Maisel. I just released my second album two months ago, so if you're into my comedy uh album is called white man can't joke just to play on white man can't jump which is one of my favorite movies uh you can get that on itunes amazon spotify uh anywhere that you stream pandora listen to my albums watch the show i noticed it's on youtube as well that's someone putting it on youtube which which oh, all, really? oh, yeah okay. and by all means got like i don't give a fuck about album sales I, I see like a penny of every it doesn't matter to me like i just want people to hear the joke so if you want to go watch it on youtube for free by all means i support that too yeah because i've heard like spins on serious can be a good supplemental income for comics yeah i mean it's you know it's all great but there there's nothing more valuable than just gaining new fans so it's like Boom the 10 cents I might get from Sirius XM versus someone who might come to a show because they listened to it for free and liked it, that, that means more to me. So however you can access my material, try to support it. And it's noahgcomedy.com. All social media is Noah G Comedy. Correct. All right. And the, the final thing, if you don't mind looking in the camera and let the people know who you are and why they should listen to Hot Breath. 
Uh, my name is Noah Garden Schwartz, and I think you should listen to Hot Breath because Joel is a great guy and a great comedian who I think is uh, trying to do something for the right reasons. I think he's genuinely interested in stand up and the craft, and I think he's trying to share wisdom from other people uh, with others who are interested in stand up and the craft. So support his endeavors and support comedy, and thank you for listening and watching. All right, Noah Garden Schwartz, thanks for being on Hot Breath, my man. Thank you. Woo! Fire. Great interview. Oh, dude, the alarm literally just went off. Perfect. Like right. Wow. We are on it, man. There it is. Hot breath of verse. Hot breath episode number one hundred and ninety-three. Can you believe it? One hundred ninety-three episodes. Thank you so much for your support. I genuinely appreciate it, which is why I want to share with you this exciting news. That for 2020, I am currently booking dates. So I've already booked some gigs in South Carolina and Florida, and I'm booking some festivals. So if there's a show you want me to come do, if there's a festival you want me to come do, reach out to me directly. All the ways you can connect with me are in the show notes via social media or my website. And let's connect. I've been touring around the country a lot this past year, and it's all booked by dates of you, the listener. So I know we have listeners on all the continents except Antarctica at the moment, but I want to connect with you. The best way to do that is on our private Facebook group. A lot of additional discussions going on there. The Hot Breath Comedy Network. Search that on Facebook and you'll be able to connect with me as well as listeners from around the world. Connect with Noah. Let him know this episode was helpful. You can also show support for the podcast in this giving season by going to our Patreon page. That's linked in the show notes. But I put a lot of additional comedy content that I actually wish I had access to when I first started comedy. So it's going to be helpful to you. And remember, you get that free trophy husband koozie by signing up on the headliner level. So it's just a fun way to keep this podcast from getting watered down with a bunch of ads, which I know a lot of these podcasts are doing now, but I don't want to do that. I want to keep this free-flowing conversation, and if you enjoy that style, then going to the Patreon will definitely help us do that. Or if you want to sponsor the podcast, let's talk as well. But all that being said, long story short of it is, thank you for listening. We release these every single Monday, and I do not take your time for granted, so we will get out of here. So all that being said... Thank you, the listener, for hanging out with me. Thank you to my wife. I thank her at the end of all of these episodes, which if you know, go back, listen to every all the episode, catch up, and you will hear I thank my wife at the end of all of them because that's what we do here, all right? A lot of good merch on my website as well. Go check it out, all linked in the show notes, but tis the season, y'all. So get out there, keep grinding, stay out on the hustle. And until next Monday, right here on Hot Breath. Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.